Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. This episode was recorded a few months ago when I sat down with the architect and the educator Cathy Hawley. Cathy is a singular figure in her discipline. She's someone who has worked continually as an academic and as a practitioner and has made a career trajectory which has moved through a variety of different forms, starting out as an associate with the art and architecture collective MUF and then on to doing housing work as a founding partner with Rich Hawley McHale, including um, the work on the Stirling Prize winning Goldsmith Street housing project. And then more laterally, uh, working with Hannah Loftus as part of public practice, Cathy has always been about making visible things that might otherwise go missed. She's a very careful eye for picking out the social and physical context where she works and finding a place here for architecture to make a powerful impact to the lives of the people connected with the built work and also then to the discipline more generally. As an educator, she takes a very similar track, generally situating the conversation in a place that allows her to tease out the students' deep reading of the places where they're working to make profound insights that may seem obvious once discovered, but take work in the finding, the true value of the talented practitioner. In this conversation, we ramble widely over her early career and her views more generally about how architects need to act in the face of the changing nature of our discipline. I think there's something kind of timely about all of this. I mean, you know, as we pause and the headlong rush forward is momentarily checked, I think this conversation about finding space and time to see the things that need to be done and find a means for them to be done in a fashion which is sustainable in all its forms, socially, environmentally, and of course, intellectually, things will change for sure after this. I mean, we don't know how, but it does seem like increased care and civic cooperation is necessary. It does feel like people are saying this as we see our society respond cohesively to the challenges it faces in a very, very obvious way right now. And it would be great if some of this attitude could allow us to continue forward to thinking more holistically about the quality of the buildings that we make and it's lo- their long-term contributions to the societies where they're situated. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Cathy Hawley, um, well, we're not in the Kingston School of Art. Uh, we're here in the foyer of the National Theatre. But uh, And I don't really need to welcome you to the Kingston School of Art because, of course, you're part of our community. But thank you so much for joining us for this interview and for the lecture you're going to give this evening. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, um, we always kind of start these conversations with the obvious place, which is, where did you study? And, yeah... What were the first steps? Or was there a prehistory? When did you decide you might want to be an architect? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I studied at Sheffield. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure when I first decided. Interestingly, the work I've been doing recently probably revisits kind of rural childhood and and revisits those interests. Um, But I studied in Sheffield, which was a pleasure, actually. Um, And there I was taught briefly by Eliza and Dominic Cullinan and then went on from there to work with Muff so it was a kind of quite linear kind of education to practice in that sense um, at the point which they were shortlisted for Walsall okay yeah and so Muff at the stage so they hire you straight out of graduation um yes from that summer I wouldn't say hire we were working together (laughs) (laughs) 
and uh, yes, it wasn't. It was a kind of um, competition shortlisted project, but it wasn't a kind of um, office with lots of projects in at that point. So it was. Um, I started teaching with Julia Bidgood at that point at London Met, which was then University of North London, um, who was obviously one of the original partners of Math. And Moff at this stage, but it still is, but it was very radical in the sense of it was asking questions that people hadn't thought practice could ask or should ask. And I'm just interested in dwelling a little bit on that. Like, were those conversations that were part of your education to do with, I guess there was an anger of sorts or a critical engagement with architecture and the conventions of architecture which they were expressing or you were expressing? I think, well... There's lots of lines on that one. Um, one of the conversations I think was, which was central to that, was the kind of reaction to the, the Thatcherite. There is no such thing as society, and the public space was a place to reclaim an idea of society that was explicitly kind of excluded at that point politically. So that was the kind of status of the conversation, or the basis of the conversation, I think, and how you went from there in terms of identifying kind of action within the public realm. And, and uh, pardon my ignorance only because I was only studying architecture at that time, but wasn't there also a radical feminist agenda as well to do with uh, the removal of certain voices from architecture and also the finding of a, a means of practice which actually was slightly counter to hierarchical structures and other ways that practice had been set to work? Possibly, yeah. yes, possibly. I think it was also about reaction and action and friendship and how kind of networks of people work together. So in the same way that you could say political action is about kind of narratives of relationships kind of acted out because they're about public space. It wasn't explicitly feminist yeah. necessarily, but by necessity and by um, opportunity it was. Yeah, and I'm just interested in this Warsaw competition because there was that shortlist which was Cruiser Sinjin, Muff, Tony Fratton, yeah, and a couple of others I can't remember. But the point being that it seems to be a kind of a marker in a lot of practices evolutions. You know, Tony yeah. still talks about the job that got away a little bit. Yes, maybe it was. It was certainly. I mean, it's certainly kind of different trajectories came from that, though, obviously because. Muffs never became the the, the kind of um, trajectory that Cruiser Sinjin have, where they've been working in museums and galleries a lot. Um, but nevertheless, it kind of allowed um, a relationship to develop or a conversation to develop, which was about kind of the architecture and the urban space yeah. at the same time. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so there was a basis to that conversation that was kind of ongoing. And very quickly, you would have started to work on projects which actually were being realised and were happening from kind of small things. Yes. Yes, and I'm wondering, can we talk a little bit about that and the process behind that? Yes, so one thing I suppose that defines quite a lot of those projects is um, a definition of engagement, not consultation. So thinking about the way that you work with community as engagement, so finding what's there before you make a proposition. So it's not about taking proposition to a place, but understanding place in order to kind of find forms of action within it. Yeah. Now I suppose it's informed by people like Cedric Price and the, the, this kind of sense that action and reaction are about 
action is not always the right thing to do. You have to know what you're going to do. Um, and part of that engagement includes activation, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Part of it involves more than just passively observing what's happening, but actually engaging with people or social groupings which are actively looking for means to change or seeking an agency in their built environment, seeking... Yes, sometimes. Sometimes it's recognising that things that are important to community, and this is a conversation we've been having recently actually, is about both kind of tangible things, so physical places, architectures, parks, that kind of thing, but also kind of intangible senses of community that are acted out spatially. So um, spaces where people gather, spaces where they move. Um, I can't quite articulate that actually, I'm trying to think of the right, the right um, thing. Kind of places that have resonance for It's people? not just places, I suppose that's the thing. It's about social networks. So it's about the fact there are places where people go to knit or yeah. where elderly gather or where the community is kind of revealed. So working in a London borough where 25% of the population are under 20. Yeah. And recognising that and then finding those people because quite often there are people that don't have space to go. So it's not just about the spaces that are already there, but the spaces that aren't there, or the, the people that are there but that, that aren't given space. And in a way, then, there's a kind of a, a positing here that, you know, at, at that time there were questions over where meaning might be in architecture and what, you know, whether stylistic arguments were, were the way to come at these problems, mm -hmm. or these kinds of questions, whether architectural language could be a means to address these. And actually there was a kind of a conversation happening which posited that it's between these social structures and the physical or social interventions that you make that meaning of some sort might actually be present in these, yes. in these places. Or the definition of character. So character as yeah. a kind of idea, which is partly because I've been thinking about that, is partly about physical properties of a place but as much about a kind of um, social property or, or a kind of invisible structures of who's there and what it means to them um, and teasing out or finding some of those narratives without them becoming fetishized yeah um, which is quite an important point as well starts to, to have a relationship between fabric and people so there's a kind of an ordinariness to these things even if they themselves are slightly yes. esoteric but it's not about making things ordinary as a as a um, position yeah. You know, because I think that's then again that's another take on what language or architectural language is is more about what can be extraordinary yeah. because it's not being seen or because it surfaces things that aren't seen. Because there is this um, extraordinary uh, uh, well exotica really in the kind of standard domestic environments that we create for ourselves and the lives that we lead and that, that is, as you say, yeah, it isn't ordinary. They're quite, um, they can be quite strange things, from the objects on your mantelpiece to the furniture in your sitting room to even the types of activities you engage in. These things are not easily described as ordinary. Yes, yeah. exactly. Or, or describing things as ordinary sometimes is to um, imagine them other than they are. Yeah. But. It's, it meets a kind of pragmatism, so there's a pragmatism about it as well, about contingency and how you make things happen. So 
so that's the kind of pleasure in it sometimes, which is the, the ability to actually make something in a situation, and that's where the language comes, possibly, rather than it being purely theoretical. And is there, a, because it might be good to talk about a specific piece of work or something mm. at that time that where those things became meaningfully present for you in a way that you saw it for the first time or grasped it. Yeah. I suppose there's a, there's a kind of straightforward narrative which was about a project we did in Tilbury, mm. which was, um, I think it was Catherine, who noticed that there was obvious signs of horses being kept on a very kind of run-down estate and it was a park, it was a landscape project. And so as part of a kind of public engagement, we had an event for everyone who lived there, but we also included a gymkhana. And we just, newspaper, you know, kind of leafleted it to see who would turn up. And there was a moment when, like, 15 kids on ponies suddenly appeared between the tower blocks. And there was a kind of community which was officially not even allowed to use that space. Mm. You know, legally, they weren't allowed to be there because it was all no, no game, no ball games, no horses, no cars, you know. Um, and then the park itself made space for them. So the landscape project that came out of that made a horse arena for them to use. And also used kind of gabions across the landscape in order to stop free um, joy riding, which then became kind of things that the horses jumped on and that the kids ran on top of. And it was a kind of another landscape made out of those observations. Yeah, that, that's an extraordinary project. And I remember seeing it presented to us when we were in college and not really getting it at the time, not really understanding it. Um, and part of what I now find so um, admirable about it is uh, you would have had to convince a lot of people. So the, the intervention itself is very um, direct, but even getting the local politicians or regulatory people to understand the value of these observations you were making and celebrating, was that a struggle or did you find an appetite ready formed? Um, to navigate that. I think quite often people took off on knowing that they might not get exactly what they thought they might get. You yeah. know, that was part of the kind of strategic thinking. So a good client behind things. Um, but also I think that space was so unloved that it, what, there was an availability there. So that, you know, the kind of looseness of the place because it's so unprecious. You couldn't do the same in Grosvenor Park. Yeah. You couldn't do the same in central London. You couldn't do the same in the London Square. It was because it was peripheral already that things can happen there. And, and then this shift narratives that way. Yeah, and then this allows us to maybe more directly <coughs> talk about this interesting term that you've raised of character. And I'm, I'm, because in, in this place, the character became more explicitly present by allowing the horses and the community that they mm. were associated with become something that made the whole area better. And so this kind of unison of things working suddenly cohesively that before didn't quite sit yeah. easily together. And is this the sort of start of that conversation that character embodies the horse, the social activity of the horse, the landscape that you were able to produce because you respected the horse? Yeah. I suppose, so. yes. I, yeah. So I think character comes from all sorts of things, but it's also a term that's been used a lot now. Yeah. It's a term that's become part of the planning language, and I think that's where my interest is, is, is revisiting those kind of stories or um, thinking and how that fits into a kind of um, ongoing language that's been used in planning, yeah. and it's specifically been used about development, so that, you know, how character informs new development, and yet you drive through London and you see what you see. So how does that, those kind of things impact, and particularly when you get 
you know, more architecturally in terms of housing and densities and high density and super density, they call it as well now. How, how kind of conversations of character or, or kind of engagement with what is there might inform very specific things rather than generic things about window reveals or eaves lines. Yeah, because the planning discussion of character, as far as I understand it, well, certainly in Ireland, but I'm sure it's same here, is on one level well-intended, but tends to oscillate to quite a reductive and flat read of context and of um, certain types of acceptable context, acceptable built fabric, and rarely extends to social context or the actual presences which they might edit out. So say a, a street in London could have a modernist building, an industrial shed, some Victorian housing stock, the remnants of a Georgian thing, etc. But it would be the Georgian and the Victorian that might be expressive of character and the other stuff gets excised out in the planner's view. Or am I wrong about that? I think I think that historically is true. I think um, I think people are recognising they have to be broader than that because you can't build 12, 15 stories of Georgian territory. <laughs> so, so the narrative has to shift. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, um, I think planning is quite in quite an interesting point at the moment. So I've been working with um, Hannah Loftus uh, with Citizens Design Bureau and Hannah Loftus Citizens Design Bureau um, within South Cambridgeshire. So working in rural areas, looking at character specifically um, and how villages see themselves and helping villages articulate their character in relation to quite large-scale kind of planning development, I mean, housing development that's happening in rural areas, particularly around Cambridge and Cambridgeshire. Mm. And that's been really interesting in terms of that conversation because it, it's as much about the demographic mm. as it is about the physical and it's as much about the kind of 20th century spread and what that might tell you as it is about the historic heart of the village. Although the historic art has an absolute kind of quality that, at the same time, and um, comes through from specifically and particularly in the plot sizes, for instance, where the plots that were set out in medieval times and meeting enclosures and, and the kind of shared fields and commons actually dictate the form of growth of the village, mm. which then comes through and actually can be read in urban areas as well, because our, our cities are still following these kind of networks of small fine grain that becomes larger grain as places become um, under single ownership. And it's possible to kind of conjecture that those grains in themselves uh, are supportive of different types of, of social character, cohesive social character in these places. Yes. Yeah. yeah and there's, there's a thing, you know, just the simple fact of having a garden or not having a garden or a communal garden as yeah. opposed to an individual garden, produces different types of social social activity, different means of engaging with the collective spaces of the city. And is that part of your purview as Absolutely. well? Absolutely, yeah. I suppose, and also that's come very specifically into some of the housing work yeah. as well, about making spaces that are shared and looking at their relationship to the properties, to exactly where the windows are in the properties, that kind of thing. Um, but also through to the kind of readings of place, so looking at plots again, where you know historic kind of medieval long plots would always have houses or shops to the frontage, and then industrial you know, kind of um, warehousing or farm buildings behind on the long plot. So there was a social kind of visible presence on the street, and then there's a kind of back plot or backland of um, agricultural space or industrial space. 
And it's a sort of a, it's a typological conversation too then, in terms of that in this exercise you're doing with Hannah, is, is, are you seeking to identify typologies for how these things might happen with the community or is it broader than that even again? No, it's specifically typologies okay. and it's specifically, so we've had some meeting with developers who are kind of trying to get things into planning now and trying to preempt that kind of by pointing out some tweaks that take, come from the village that might actually mediate their proposals in terms of the kind of village um, structure. Mm. Um, so some of them are very specific. So one village that we've been working with has got a real industrial background, and the long plots were actually ended up filled up with terraced houses running perpendicular to the high street. Mm. So as a kind of narrative of a typology, the yards, which all had pumps and then had terraced houses perpendicular to the street, becomes a typology that they could suggest with densification as opposed to just the out-of-town kind of um, box, small box to state. You know, so it's how they find ways of kind of setting up a conversation about what is there and its history. Yeah, and what's really interesting with that is that actually some of those things end up with, thing, with typologies which might be denser or might be actually more sustainable socially and that's, physically? That's the aim, yeah. yeah. So the aim is, and also because I think a lot of the villages are very resistant and quite reasonably to things that are higher. Yeah. You know, because because that is not the typology of village. The village always was lower at, at its edges, apart from the old barn or kind of agricultural space or industrial space. So um, trying to kind of give them a way of um, talking about density that's about history and about community. So, for instance, ageing populations in a lot of villages means that spaces that you can get in and out of easily are really important. So, kind of, you know, single-storey access, um, accessibility is all part of that conversation. Yeah. So, on one level, it's very pragmatic conversation about typology and development and how it might be led through kind of character observation. And what's really interesting about this conversation, then, to some extent, whether it's dressed in the local brick or stone or whatever it might be, is less the producer of the character than this sort of grain and the texture that emerges from that. Yeah. And yeah. there's always a tension there because in actual fact, I, you know, the intention was never to be someone who said, oh, you should, you know, person, you should dress your houses with more local brick than you should with stone. Because we know what they do and that's a kind of, you know, they will do things like that. That's what they do. Um, so the typology, I think, that's most interesting comes in the urban plan mm. rather than necessarily in the fabric. Although, of course, we talk about the fabric as well. I think some of the conversations about fabric are environmentally led or in terms of sustainability, certainly for me. Yeah. You know, I'm more interested in some of those conversations where they start to talk about kind of environment. This is really interesting because we're now talking about you... Master planning is not the right word, but potentially making an influence to huge sections of a town right? yeah. so on a huge scale. Yeah. And based on some really quite discrete observations, and what's really yeah. kind of compelling about those is that they are based on, I'm trying to find the right word, but I'm remembering um, when you teach that you put a lot of stock in um, pulling out the character of things and you're very comfortable with using historical sources and traditions of representation and explorative mm -hmm. representation to make things anew and to find, try and find the character beyond the obvious. 
And what's kind of rather lovely about what you're describing is that you're using those self-same techniques to actually remake a whole town. Yeah, or, or to talk about how changes to that town might learn from structures that are already there. Yeah. But not by looking like false, fake barns, but by understanding that you know, there are, for instance, green kind of fingers that come into the centre of the village and how might you retain those through new development rather than cut it off, rather than make cul-de-sacs that aren't, you know, aren't through roots. So some of it's quite, I mean, it's quite pragmatic planning yeah. stuff in a way, um, but it's how it hits upon precedent, yeah. both kind of 20th century and previous precedent. And it's funny because, um, to be slightly provocative about it, I'm thinking of Ram Callhouse's polemic about bigness, Mm-hmm. and about how above a certain scale all the traditional tools of the architect have no value anymore. And of course he's doing what he always does, which is make excuses for his own mm-hmm. um, offences. But what you're saying is actually quite a profound counter-argument, which is actually, no, 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 they, they still exist. Yeah. I think they exist certainly... I, I think there's something really interesting about plan and section and the relationship between the two, which I'm not sure about yet, but um, it's work that I'm talking about doing at the moment, is how this kind of the massive scale of development, say, that's happening in London, starts to be impacted by readings of character. Not in terms of whether its style is this, that or the other, but in terms of a kind of other unlocking of different frameworks for thinking about it. Can't answer that yet because I think. No, I know, I know. It's a really, it's a really interesting topic. I do wish there was. Um, and it's, I always tend to because one always thinks about where one's from, but it, it, that sort of conversation isn't happening as mm. as of yet in our in Ireland at all. Yeah. It just doesn't exist, and um, so we're getting. Uh, we have a housing crisis very similar to the housing crisis you have here, caused by the mm. same issues. You know, lack of state investment yeah. in social housing, all of this stuff. But what's kind of profoundly sad about it all is they're not producing these sorts of social mm. and legislative structures to allow those things yeah. happen. Now, whether what takes um, predom- you know, what's predominant within sorry, what takes precedence within these situations is another question here. Mm. So I think some of these things are happening. So, for instance, Hannah's the one that instigated as part of public practice these village design guides. You know, they are happening, but they're happening fairly. Rarely, and yeah. quite ho- quite often they are about vernacular, traditional material. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that, but they are, in that sense, they're limited yeah. to what they can produce, I think. Um, so in some ways, you know, that's kind of a micro-project that she's kind of kick-started. Um, nevertheless, the Draft London Plan actually emphasises character, which is why, if you look around at the competitions at the moment, you'll see that a lot of the London boroughs are looking for people to character work, which is very interesting. Um, what the impact of that will be will be very interesting. But simultaneously, the, the housing minister just overrode another big, you know, kind of um, application that was refused and gave it permission. You know, yeah. so in actual fact, it's about power structures and where it meets legislation. So the um, village design guides are supplementary planning guidance. They're not. They don't have to be. Kind of, you, know, you can use them as material kind of um, ways of objecting or supporting applications, but they're not the fundamental basis of decision making. Yeah. Um, and but what is interesting is the draft London plan is actually got a lot of 
conversation about character within it. But this is interesting, and the bridging point between, you know, and actually what you're talking about now is very similar to what you were talking about with the horses in... in oh, yeah. Yeah, right. there's power structures, there's ways of doing mm -hmm. things, there's things that need yeah. to be challenged and critiqued and thought about more cleverly. But the bridging point is a series of quite remarkable housing projects like that you've designed yeah. uh, with others, and I'm kind of interested in that journey too, which is the discoveries of that process, um, the things that you sat to one side out of a work technique, yeah. what things worked there, what things didn't, how have you bridged those two things? So, I think sometimes the design is instinctive and comes from your knowledge of going to a place quite a few times. So for instance, the clay field, the Suffolk one, which if we're talking about rural villages, that was drawn about 200 times as a site plan between three of us endlessly 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 until we kind of knew it worked yeah. and it took a hell of a long time to get there and but it had certain guiding principles which were looking at the grain of the village and seeing that ter there weren't really many terraces at all and nothing around it set up long walls everything was in kind of like long low bungalow blocks or blocks of free houses that kind of thing so trying to find a grain that worked um, but also grain that could work on a tighter basis. Mm. Yeah, so that that was their terraces, but their terraces are three. So um, there is a point where there is actually uh, there is the the moment where you have to not impose it's the wrong word, but you mm. conject into a context, yeah. and sometimes that's about importation or things that are other mm. to try and find the yeah. character that might actually work there. And sometimes I think. Yeah, because it's, it's a tricky line, because I wouldn't say everything has to be determined by, an, uh, by a character reading. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, yeah. and so I suppose, yes, you can then contradict that by saying, oh, just, we just knew that was the best plan we'd get to. Yeah. And we were utterly convinced that it was, and it's quite, kind of, you know, convinced that it was working. Because well. that part of it, which is that the architect is part of the site, and the architect... Um, necessarily will make it different than another architect using the same, because you have a different yeah. spatial history and all of that, yeah. and I think there's this kind of complex weaving of, you know, exotic importation, which as you say is our intuition and skill and our spatial history and how we think things will work, and then this kind of sensitivity to where those things are working, or in your case, a, a sensitivity to where those things are, how they actually work. And I'm, I'm thinking then actually of a couple of research projects that you did, you know, um, predominantly as part of your teaching mm. activities. And I'm thinking of that study you did of Malaguerra and Evera, yeah. and of course, that CESA project, which is... That is was a brilliant one to look at, yeah. <laughs> in terms of a kind of education for oneself. It was brilliant. Because that is, if I get it right, sort of a grain from Pompeii, sort of reimagined as a suburban, not a suburban, but an island kind of extension of ever using a metaphorical reading of the aqueduct as some kind of social and physical infrastructure. This is my yeah. take, having not been to Malagaria. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing to add to that, or kind of in parallel with that for me, was that it, it was very obvious that it works around a sense of landscape. So mm. there were kind of bits of kind of tamed or ordered landscape and, and, the, and the aqueducts or the the um, ductwork that he set up, which was a kind of infrastructure of servicing, 
works along with the topography of the landscape and then he left open these kind of extremely untouched pieces of landscape within that with their rocks and their streams and watercourses and so there was a kind of topography of housing meets the topography of existing landscape um, and the first thing he did when he went to Everett apparently was he went up in an aeroplane hmm. and looked at the landscape from above and there's photos that he took from that and drawings that he did from flying above it and seeing it and I think that's really interesting reading of place and mm. um, to see that so his instinctive thing is to look at what's there but obviously he brings his kind of genius with him yeah. to how he then interprets that and, and places another order on top of it and he has this slightly uh, well he refuses to be fully pinned down as to whether he is a contextual architect or not. Absolutely, yeah. and I think quite rightly so, because I think yeah, even the kind of classical reference, and I think when you look at it, you can see those references, but he wouldn't necessarily say that. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, there's an instinct there which is about, and it's very beautiful, it's a very beautiful place, so I thoroughly recommend going. Yes, it I has really this, um, It's, um, it has a landscape within it as well. Just if everything from the way the walls work against the streets to the way the parking bays work as kind of objects in landscape, it's very composed. Um, yeah. And it's 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 that's an intriguing one just to kind of dwell on because beauty is again something like character, which is um, both over and underused. Do you know what I mean yeah. as a word? Uh, certain people avoid it because of its misuse, mm. and certain people use it, I don't know, well, actually, pejoratively, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering um, if we might talk about that a little bit, because beauty is a goal, and beauty is a desire, and beauty has yeah. qualities, and have you had time to reflect on what those values might be for you, and what your reading of that might be? really hard. It is. <laughs> the answer to that might be no. <laughs> I could probably come up with something in five minutes. Um, I know what I find beautiful. I understand a perjurative kind of response to things and I'm kind of, you know, I'm with Ventura. I mean, I like complexity and kind of, contra I like contradiction in things and I do find things that are ugly beautiful. Yeah. I know, um, there's a lecture series, what's this? Mark Cousins at the um, AA did a lecture series on the ugly, mm. which is a really interesting idea, and I didn't go. It's just the idea of it stuck with me as a kind of thinking about the aesthetics of something and, and your kind of instinctive reaction to it. It's an interesting one. Is that I ask, I have no opinion myself either, and, but I am thinking about how enabling it can be to point at something and say, isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And it could be something that on the surface is ugly or difficult or complicated or whatever, but it asks a question to either empathise with that observation or to reject it. It's quite yeah. a, it's quite a compelling thing to say. Um, I'm actually just as we talk now, I'm just thinking of um, I was reading an essay recently about some letters that Wittgenstein's sister and he entered right. into a correspondence. Anyway, in it apparently it sort of undoes a lot of the mythology about mm -hmm. Wittgenstein being. You know, austere and unempathetic. Yeah. And she says this thing in one 
letter, which is really rather beautiful, which is she says, um, there's nothing more beautiful than being understood by another. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That there's nothing that there's nothing in human experience that is more beautiful than that. Yeah. And I think that beauty must reside both sides, both to understand and to be understood. Those things seem to be um, she's suggesting. Yes, yeah, the so there's a relationship yeah. implicit in it, in, yeah. in effect. So the relationship is that to find something, for something to be beautiful, you have to find it beautiful. Yeah. And to find it beautiful, it has to have some resonance for you, either with experience or non-experience or, or kind of aesthetic proclivity or a, a way of thinking that means that it engages with you yeah. somehow. And, uh, uh, and what, uh, what's kind of intriguing about that as well is that that immediately sets up the idea of, as you say, a relationship, but also um, connection with others. Or a kind of, it's implied that for you to find something beautiful, that beauty somehow needs to be shared, to be validated, or to be kind of understood or articulated. Yeah. Or kind of, um, I guess the reason I'm saying this is because so much of the work in teaching that you were. Uh, involved in at the time that I knew you working was uh, helping the students to the point of incredible beauty in their observations about things and in how Mm. they told us about those things and I'm just wondering again about that as a method that technique Um, I'm thinking of a drawing of a site which is both a beautiful drawing and at the same time says something true Mm. about that place um. I'd argue, well, I think one thing about that is that by learning to edit, so whether it's just thinking about the horses for a while, or whether it's drawing just the landscape, or drawing just the viaduct, or drawing just mm. the kitchen, or whatever it is, it allows someone to have a place to act and to understand, including well self as an architect because I think we all are editorial obviously we never not everything is never simultaneously in your head about a place or an object or a precedent whatever it is but by being editorial you can start to act in a way that is kind of potentially unexpected yeah as well I think that's really true I really like that observation because as soon as you start pulling at a thread yeah you eventually get the jumper yeah but you have to pull at a thread and also you have to be careful that you, you don't end up doing things that are kind of willfully kind of absurd in yeah. the situation because it's, it is, you know, you could also read things in a way that is kind of so partial it's exclusive. Yeah. But I think that's a kind of tension to it which is enjoyable because it's only by being particular that you do something unexpectedly kind of um, resonant, I think. Yeah, that is true. It is true, and it, it's actually. I'm speculating, but no, it, yeah. I'm just thinking. I think it's a really. Um, I mean, this, these are meaty topics, but I think that it's really. Okay, I'm thinking on two levels actually. I'm thinking of things which have attracted attention, right? Yeah. So, um, on a completely superficial level, say, uh, the Becker's photographs of found industrial yeah. things, and obviously, what they have in common as a typology is specificity that isn't aesthetically oriented per se, but a specificity that produces an aesthetic yeah. resonance. And it does seem that if you set out to do something very pure, like suspend a thousand gallons of water in the air, or you know, produce something that cools water vapour so that it drips, yeah. those things 
seem, that specificity seems to be a way to a sort of a beauty, yeah. even if it's acontextual and yeah. e even if it's just for itself. And I think it has an immediate ease of reaction to people. So being able to strip back complexity so you're not trying to do everything allows an, an engagement that's about di direct engagement, um, possibly. There was an external examiner we had right at the beginning of teaching at London Met, who, um, Matthias Sauerbrook, oh, yeah. who said um, what he liked about, I think it was myself and Mel at the time, or Juliet, um, was it was kind of a bit like a dirty realism. Yeah, I had this element of kind of, you know, the Raymond Carver side of life, with the kind of utterly kind of personal narrative that could be flipped, yeah. and that became flipped or became spatial and became propositional. Um, which always stuck with me because it's a really nice, I don't think we ever quite lived up to it, but it's a really nice idea of a kind of way of working um, that's about a kind of relationship between observation and proposal and proposition. Yeah, and, and it also has a, a, another truism in that statement and the link to Carver, just as an idea, is that these things that you're talking about contain narratives. Yeah. So the, the things I'm just noticing now that you tend to speak about have a narrative embedded in the thing, if you know what I mean. Frequently, yeah. I try not to use the word because I know it kind of comes back almost to my early education where it was that lots of people spoke about narrative as a thing. But nevertheless, I think the kind of story of something is yeah. really important. Yeah, as a living thing or even a story yeah. that has passed. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, so this is kind of, so we've covered a lot of things here. And what I'm kind of interested in, and it's kind of the, to some extent, the, the obvious thing to say, but also maybe the, the less obvious thing to say is that um, you formed, you formed your practice by moving laterally and going deep in the situations that you are and then moving on. And it's very difficult to imagine um, a firm or a corporate entity that could encompass the scope of what you're describing now. And it does seem to be a slight problem of architectural um, criticism and also of education, which is that these forms of practice that you embody are harder to identify sometimes and harder to celebrate. And I'm just interested in your views on that, or do you think I'm just speaking bunkum and, you know, um, I guess what I'm saying is the reason that you're speaking in the Register series is because wherever you've acted, you've made a profound impact on the place that you've acted, either as an educator or as an architect in a practice, or working for yourself, or working with uh, regulatory bodies. And so a practice, a kind of shape of mm. discussion, which is this conversation, is possible to see, one that has a profound value. And how does that seem to you, your side of the table? I think it's a tricky question, because in some ways it's um, circumstantial. Yes, of course. You know, so I you could kind of I could unpick it um, I think I do I think it's a bit like the architect going to the site you kind of act the way you act so I recognize my own hand I recognize other people's hands as well you know I recognize ways that people work but what I'm I think I probably had to be more agile yes I think that's, that's true. maybe the case but what I'm coming rather than it having a virtue well I'm not saying that I'm not positing whether no. it's a virtue or not, what I'm saying is that everyone's life and everyone's yeah. practice is circumstantial, my own included yeah. and everybody else's, and some people's circumstances produce a linear, clearly identifiable mm. name linked to buildings and ideas, yeah. and that's so easy for 
critical and historical study. And yeah. then I think equally circumstantial forces produce other forms of navigating the world of practice and they are no less valuable in my opinion and frequently more so actually. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the enabling person in a practice that becomes the celebrated name. Yeah. And of course without that other person who remains frequently nameless, this other mm. person wouldn't be able to be the celebrated architect they are. And in your case actually what I'm interested in is just the continual need to make sense of the journey. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it's circumstantial. I'm sure at times it hasn't been easy. And and yet it always seems to make sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To the outside. There's an act of making sense of things. Yes, and how do you do that, I guess I'm asking? Is it conversation? Is it reflection of other types? or? Um, I don't know. I think it's probably um, quite strong interests that haven't disappeared, both yeah. literary, you know, so going back to Carver and a kind of certain strand of a kind of American realism and kind of writing, yeah. allied to kind of um, literally an interest in landscape and English landscape and particularly the east of England, coincidentally, that's gone through quite a lot of different projects and works that allows kind of um, a cumulative effect. That's does that make sense? Yeah. It does. Can I, I link Great American Literature to East Anglia? Well, what I think what you're saying is that one's own character and your personal um, loves and the things that one is compelled by are actually, while ephemeral in certain settings, mm. they're actually the thing that can keep things moving, even though economic and other things can be quite yeah. disruptive of them. Yeah. And I just think that's, first of all, a really important thing to say for the students listening, mm. but and actually for practicing architects, because things increasingly, as one goes on, they feel more tenuous and they feel more brittle and they feel yeah. more fragile. And actually, what you're saying is, yeah, they are. But actually, if you are clear about your fascinations and if you're able to allow them continue to have space in your life, yeah. things will co continually recohere for yourself, or they seem to be able to do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, until you stop hit the, <laughs> <laughs> hit the bottle at the age of sixty, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, yeah, look, I mean that lies for all of us. Yeah. Well, some extent, but, <laughs> you know, when we hit bonus time. Yeah, it, that's a tricky. Who knows? Who knows where was kind of the narrative of things goes? No, who knows? No, yeah. exactly. Okay. I, I, I'm merely saying yeah. that. Yeah. I think wanting to make work is quite important and continually making work. I mean, it's something, it's one of these um, kind of, I can't remember some motivational speaker at the moment talking about success for kids mm. and the kids understanding that actually it's not about ability necessarily, it's about persistence that makes kind of bodies of things and that you have to keep doing it or trying to make sense of it in order for it to make sense. Yeah. Because otherwise it's, it's not just going to appear. Yeah. And I think the, that that reminds you of something else, which is that that persistence doesn't come because you're standing over somebody forcing them to do it. It comes because uh, because one's compelled to do it. I'm, th I'm thinking of that um, observation by My Malcolm Gladwell about you know uh, virtuosity or some form of words like that is possible mm. after you've invested 10,000 hours in something, mm. which of course uh, produces parents kind of forcing their children yeah. to try and turn them into Tiger Woods or Venus Williams or somebody, or Serena Williams rather. And 
what what I'm interested in that is that actually that 10,000 hours is only possible if you love something. Like, you cannot get to 10,000 hours, or well, you can, miserably. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You have to be genuinely motivated yeah. to want to do that. Yeah. You know, because it, and also to pursue ideas or subject matter that keeps coming back. You have to want, you have to be interested in it genuinely. Yeah. You can't kind of manufacture content we always close these interviews with a question um, which is that if you had a piece of advice to give a student studying today or about to study today about architecture studies mm. what would it be sadly different to myself or yourself probably I think we have to find better methods for, in, for kind of keeping the world in one piece Mm. And I think that I think it is something that people have to take seriously, creatively seriously, and narrative-wise, because it it just feels like the most important thing at the moment. And do you so that's not very positive. But well, it is positive, but does that mean collective action, or does that mean? Um, I think it means both collective action in terms of understanding that, you know, for some reason, Extinction Rebellion have suddenly been named as a kind of um, extremist group, mm. for instance. But I think it also means understanding the kind of in, the kind of holistic relationship of landscape, architecture, making, design, conversation, all of this thing with the kind of. Um, with the use of resource and the reality of the world around you. So that's engagement between reality and thinking. It's really important. It's a lot to put on it is. a generation that didn't cause any of these problems. And I'm just wondering in that spirit, are there things that people like me or people who lead education institutions or those kinds of things can do to help that process or enable it? Yes. And what would those things be, do you think? I think we have to use ideas about environment sustainability as drivers for projects, not yeah. things that are about the end product. I think education has to take it on board as a kind of, you know, understanding what's coming from the roads into the rivers, understanding these, these kind of processes that so are there. So to use that as a generator, say, of an architectural yeah. language or whatever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, as part of, not only. Yeah. So I haven't thought this through because I know it's quite a tough one to add on. But I feel we, we've never done it very well, and I include myself in terms of architectural education because it becomes a bolt-on. Yeah. And, and it almost universally. No, I think that's really interesting. I mean, we're, we're attempting to do something, and we're only starting it. We're not really um, polemicising about it. But we're theming the school on architectural languages yeah. because we feel that for there to be a response to climate in a meaningful sense, that it involves an aesthetic that actually is not one of faux naivete or some kind of false dressing of sustainable yeah. credentials. It's actually a meaningful rethinking of what constitutes expressive languages in architecture. And that comes yeah. from quite a traditional method. You know, it's, architecture has always done this. It did yeah. it in Chicago, did it in Renaissance, etc. I think yes, I think I think need, the kind of way that language is kind of developed is really important in relation to this because it. I mean, you can see it in some of the housing we've done, yeah. but also 
just things like the arguments about reuse and yeah. seeing language and, and understanding the kind of integration of, of existing fabrics, things. Uh, architecture is maybe too big work because everything from landscape to architecture to ruin to that to you know, kind of situation, integrating that into a kind of ongoing language and change. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that because sometimes that produces, you know, quite paradoxical consequence. Like sometimes the right thing to do is to keep everything and think about the smallest thing that you can do. And somehow architectural understanding needs to find a way for the expression of that skill set. But then equally, there can be times when demolition or removal is also the sustainable thing to do. And I think there's a kind of an interesting, we need to become much more sophisticated by how we talk about these things. Yeah. You know, like, um, like the argument about concrete is a very interesting one, which is that there's a kind of a, a coterie of people, I don't understand where they're coming from, which is there's any use of concrete, it's just unsustainable, mm. not, I'm not even going to talk about it. Mm. And actually, you have to go, well, actually, you should look at the industries and the places where you're working, and sometimes that's not actually possible to do. It's not actually sustainable, sustainable no. possibly to do that. So we need to develop a nuanced yeah. sophistication about this stuff. I think we do, and I think we also need to acknowledge a kind of need set against environment and how we take, make a relationship between the two, and that's some of the things we've been looking at recently is the idea of a kind of um, infrastructure-led sustainability rather than necessarily just an architectural embedded mm. sustainability, but what does it mean to have sustainable infrastructure? Um, again, bringing it right down to the really basic, pragmatic, you know, the housing report from the UCL that came out this week, which has got so much to do with proximity of things to where people live. So how do you think about proximities and what happens where and how is that kind of embedded within education yeah I think it's very important yeah and the distribution of things like yeah. everything from water treatment to um, electricity generation right so yeah what does it distributed it's a much more heterogeneous kind of context we're going to end up with I guess of unlike things being collaged together yeah, yeah. yes for potentially yeah I mean I'm not even sure what, what the result of it all is for um, but I think that I think there is a kind of profound shift needs to take place, really. Which sort of brings us back to your point about sometimes the ugly thing has to become beautiful for us yeah. to allow it to happen. Mm. Yeah. I think so. I think we have to kind of. It's hard because you're right. I don't think that's not potentially that's not an answer to your question. It's not about what a student should think about. But I think it's a student kind of a learn a learning to look at situation really is probably the most important thing. So whether that situation has an underlying kind of sustainable ambition or not, it's about being able to editorially look at something and work out how to act within it. Yeah. That sounds like a lovely place to end. So thank you so much, Kathy. That was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Register. Do subscribe and stay tuned for our forthcoming interviews, which include Simon Henley, AOC, Grafton Architects, Neil McLaughlin and more. Um, In the meantime, just before signing off, I'd like to thank you, our listeners, but also to thank uh, Matt Wells and Matt Phillips and Christoph Luder, along with Laura Evans, who all help as part of Register. And I do hope you join us next time. Thank you. (laughs) 